Well, if you'll please take a copy of God's Word and turn to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1,252. And just a reminder that if you don't have a copy of God's Word of your own, we'd love to give you one. You'll find it uh, on the table right outside the back double doors. Uh, Well, if you will please stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. For their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that now as we uh, move to the preaching of your word, uh, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, that our hearts would be engaged, that you would move in us by the spirit. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. There's a significant shift that occurs at the beginning of chapter 2. Up until this point uh, in Colossians, Paul has been pretty positive in the things he has said. There have been some hints about the challenges that are facing the Colossian church, but his focus up until this point, and really anticipating the warnings he's going to give now, beginning in this passage, and especially into next week as well, uh, he's been talking about the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ, that, that Jesus is enough, everything we need. And now he's going to begin to apply it to some of the specific challenges that they're facing. You'll remember that there are two distinct challenges that the Colossians, Colossians are facing. And the first is they are facing the temptation that is common, it was common in their culture and in ours, to fall back into sensuous living. They have been converted out of an exceedingly promiscuous sexually culture, and having come out of that, they were now faced in temptation to slide back into the sins of the flesh, something that we as Americans certainly can also understand. The, The second, though, is dealing with what the Colossians, or excuse me, what theologians call the Colossian heresy. We're not real sure about what it all entailed, but there were these false teachers who were at the very least saying that Jesus wasn't enough. Jesus wasn't enough. That there was something else or some teaching that was needed in order to be a real Christian or a tier one Christian. You know, what you have in the Word of God and what you've heard from Paul, that that might be enough for normal people. But if you really want to get to the next level, then then you need what they had to offer. It seems to have included some sort of extra learning or uh, involvement of Jewish rituals. We're not entirely sure, but, but it certainly was something that wasn't available to every normal Christian in the Word of God. What Paul had preached to Epaphras, and then Epaphras had in turn preached to them, was good as far as it went. 
But real, enlightened Christians needed a little bit extra. And so Paul's going to deal with us this false idea. You know, so Paul begins to warn the Colossians in, in our text today, and, and we'll continue to explore this theme next week in 6 through 10, about these, the dangers of these false teachers and their persuading arguments. And in doing so, he reminds them and us that Jesus really is enough. Well, Paul describes his concern for the Colossians in verse 1. We read there, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul has only met a few of the Colossians. Uh, He's going to name them later in the book. But he has never visited this church. It is likely he traveled through uh, Colossae on the way to Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys, but there wasn't a church there then, and so he hadn't met these folks. It seems that a man named Epaphras, who was from that area, uh, was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and then Epaphras went and took the word that he had heard uh, to what is called the the Lycus Valley, which included three cities that were close to each other, Colossae uh, and Laodicea. Laodicea is mentioned in our text today, and then later in the book, The third city, Heriopolis, is also mentioned. So Epaphras had these concerns about what was going on in these three churches, or at least in Colossae. And so he went and saw Paul. And where was Paul? He was imprisoned in Rome. And he he brings this this message. Uh, One of uh, this report, one of really encouraging stuff. I mean, things seem to be going really well in Colossae. There are these challenges, and every congregation faces challenges. He brings a good report, but, but also a report of like, hey, help, help me know how to deal with this. And so Paul's going to write this letter, warning them about what was going on. Now, while Paul didn't plant these churches, Epaphras did. Now, here's the thing. One thing that I've noticed as we've done life together is it's one thing to mess with a child. It's another thing to mess with a grandchild, right? That's like a whole other level of... of uh, of getting your heart involved and, and grandparents getting feisty, right? This is kind of what's going on here. These were not his children, if we want to call it that, that he planted. Rather, these were the, his grandchildren that had been planted by someone that he had led to the Lord. And Paul is really concerned about them. In fact, he, he's going to use a really important word. He, he's talking about the struggle that he has for them. This word is an intense word. And it's a word that's used in Greek literature to talk about the struggle that athletes would have in a wrestling match or charioteers would have on the racetrack. That's the kind of fervor and struggle that Paul has for them. In fact, it's the word we get agony from. He is agonizing over the dangers that the Colossian church is facing. You know, I think as a side application here, we can learn a lot from Paul about what it means to struggle for those around us, to struggle on their behalf. Because how did he do this? How did he do this? Well, we learn in Colossians 1.9 how he did it. He said, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He labored so intensely in prayer for the Colossian church, most of whom he had never met that he is able to use a word that we might translate as agonizing, as wrestling. You know, 
a lot of times we'll say, uh, I wish, you know, I just wish there was something I could do for them. And I know what we mean by that. And, uh, and I say it too. But you know, one of the best gifts you can give to someone is to struggle in prayer for them. I was thinking about our seven seniors who will be graduating and we'll be celebrating them Wednesday night. And I hope you'll come as Rob Fawcett comes and brings the message. Um, you know, many of us will give them, uh, you know, gifts, probably smaller ones because there's seven of them. Uh, but we'll give them gifts. But, but you know what would be the greatest gift that you could probably give them? Is to say, is to write them a note and say, between now and when you start college, I'm going to set aside one day of, fair, of fasting and prayer for you. I'm going to struggle before the throne of God on your behalf that he might bless your next four, five, six years at college. We have that privilege of struggling on behalf of someone else before the throne that, that we wouldn't be content just to ask, but to seek, and not just to seek, but to knock. Paul seemed to think that prayer actually worked because he's willing to put in this kind of effort. I wonder if our, if our attitudes demonstrate the same. In verses 2 through 3, we get the content of his prayer. And it focuses around the idea, the need, uh, the fact that Jesus has everything they need. They don't need any other extraneous teaching that seeks to add to what is found in Christ and in his word. Paul first says that he is praying that their hearts would be encouraged. We all need encouragement, don't we? Think about the kind of encouragement that they needed. They were facing fierce temptation to slide back into sexual sin. And don't you know that as some of this false teaching started to make its way into the church, that there was division beginning to grow. Because you would begin to have different contingents within the church of those who had been enlightened as they followed the false teachers and those who were just normal Christians like everybody else. And those things would begin to affect each decision that was made in the church and even the unity that they would have enjoyed around the Lord's Supper. And Paul is saying, I want y'all to be encouraged. And not just any kind of general encouragement, but, but this text here says being knit together in love. Um, one translation I like, it says being welded together in love. You know, when you weld something, you know, you're joining two things that may be different into one thing. And this is what we have, what has happened to us in Christ, that we are united to Christ with each other. This morning, um, I ate uh, Greek yogurt for breakfast. I do most mornings. Uh, I, I eat the plain Greek yogurt off-brand, which tastes about as good as it sounds. And I have found that you can mix in peanut butter into the Greek yogurt and it makes it slightly more palatable. It takes a while to mix in the peanut butter. Peanut butter doesn't like to be mixed into really anything, especially something kind of fluffy and thick and dense as Greek yogurt. But when I'm done, I can look and there'll be swirls of the peanut butter. Now I can tell where the peanut butter begins and the yogurt ends, but I can't separate them. And that's the kind of the language here. 
that we, as a congregation, as God's people, would be so knit together that, yes, we're separate, we're individual, but that we're so knit together, blended in together, that, that while you can tell where one begins, the other ends, that there's no real way to separate our lives. Because this is certainly our destiny for the life to come as we celebrate, as we live, as we enjoy eternal life, both now and the life to come. It is a great thing when brothers in unity dwell, as the old hymn says. Um, Now, he wants them to be encouraged in a specific way, having been, uh, their hearts being knitted together, and we see this in verse uh, 2 and 3, to reach all the riches of the full assurance excuse me, to to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These two passages are just chocked full of wonderful things. It's pregnant with meaning. Uh, But let let me point out two things. First, his desire is that their encouragement would come being knitted together in love as they are growing in their knowledge of God. He's already prayed for this earlier in Colossians Colossians 1, 9 through 14. But here it specifically focuses on Christ, which he describes as the mystery of God. Remember, biblically, a mystery is not something that is so hidden that uh, you can only discover what it means if you have the right kind of sleuthing skills. Rather, a mystery is something that was hidden or concealed and now has been revealed. We know it because God has revealed it to us. And and who is this mystery? What is this mystery? It's Jesus. The promised Messiah had come. You had prophecies in the Old Testament, lots of them, actually. But when He came, He came in some pretty surprising ways. David's Lord and David's Son... He came in such a way that that people were surprised by the particulars, born in a stable, raised by a carpenter, nowhere to call home during his ministry, heralded at one point and then denounced a few days later, falsely tried and convicted, scourged and crucified. And then the body of the God-man, Jesus, the Messiah, was in a grave. He was dead. Was the Messiah really supposed to die? In a borrowed tomb, he lay for three days. Who would have guessed it? But God had revealed this mystery, was revealing his plan of redemption as up from the grave our Savior arose, ascended into heaven, and now has sent forth his Holy Spirit in power upon all believers. And the Gentiles are included in the one people of God? These are things that that have been revealed to us by Christ. We would not have known them if God had not revealed them to us. And so, what is Paul's answer? Don't look to the extra. Look to Jesus. He's the mystery. Don't run after some sort of hidden knowledge that one person has to tell you or a certain group of people. They have the corner on knowledge. Rather, look to Jesus. He has everything you need. It's likely that the Colossian heresy, depending on which commentary you listen to, included something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that there's a hidden truth only available through certain teachers. This was a a mystery. And and now we begin to see why Paul keeps using these these words. There There was this mystery that was hidden 
It needed to be passed on from one person to the next, often with payment, uh, including often certain secret oaths and, and words and ceremonies. Paul says, forget all that. The mystery in which all the riches of knowledge and wisdom, it doesn't belong to somebody who's been traveling through the area and is taking payment for what they're teaching. It's in Jesus, the one who paid for your redemption and was raised on the third day. It has been made known openly, openly from the Word of God as we testify about Jesus. Second, Paul in his prayer, they would be encouraged He reminds them that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He really is poking directly at the false teachers here. You know, the riches, don't you love that word? Riches or treasures of all knowledge and wisdom. Everything we need, we get from Jesus. Everything. You know, the, the word hidden here can also be translated as stored up. Where do you go when you need food? You go to the store. Why? Because they've stored it up so that you can buy it. Where do we run when we need something for life and godliness? We run to Jesus. We run to Jesus. Well, third point here is to beware of plausible arguments. You know, I get a lot of emails from uh, Christian publishers and bookstores. Uh, And I finally have just put a filter in my email that anything other than uh, Westminster Theological Bookstore or Puritan Reformed basically goes straight into my trash. Because I can trust those people to give me the books that are are actually really good. Now, there might be some other ones trustworthy that you might know, but I, I don't. Because half the time they'll promote a book and it's like, if you really want to be a Christian, then you have to read this book. And if you don't read this book, you probably don't love the Lord. Right? I mean, like even good books get that kind of weight. And I understand they're just trying to sell books. But we begin to have this thing that we need Jesus and the Word, but you got to go to this conference too. You ever talk to somebody right after they get back from a conference? I've, I'm like this. I've got the secret. It's awesome. Now I know. Right? Or this new book. It's so good. If you love Jesus, you'll read it too. Now read books. Please. Uh, tomorrow, 25 pastors are gathering in the Fellowship Hall to talk about a book we're reading together on being small-town pastors. Read those books. Go to those conferences. Listen to the sermons online. But don't let anybody ever tell you that unless you listen to them, you're not a a real believer. You, You really hadn't hit the next level because Jesus really is enough. And that's a trick that people have been using ever since Jesus' time. He says... I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This idea of plausible arguments here uh, implies erroneous arguments, tightly reasoned with proof texts that appeal both to the mind and to the emotion. Paul didn't want the Colossians to be deluded, that is, deceived or misled. So Paul prayed really hard. What is he praying for? He's struggling before the throne of God. And what is he praying for them? Well, in this context, he's praying that they would not be misled by false teachers. Now, I want to make a direct application of something that is happening today. Today is is May 7th, and I've had it on my calendar for the last two months. Let me find my notes here, and I'll tell you why. 
Because by the end of today, um, the Alabama-West Florida Conference of the United Methodist Church will have gone from 557 churches, excuse me, 511 churches to 318 churches. Uh, that's, that's over a third of their churches are leaving the United Methodist Church today. There's a, a conference call at 4 o'clock. Uh, these congregations like First Methodist here in Bruton, First Methodist in East Bruton, I believe Andalusia, I think Pollard, uh, have decided to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church. Now, we can, we can talk about this because this is what we did in the early 90s when we left the Presbyterian Church, United States of America. Because false teaching had so come into our old denomination that the Word of God had been abandoned. And what you needed was some extra enlightened thinking to properly understand what the Bible said. Um, today, if you include today and, and last year too, 43% of the churches in, in the Alabama-West Florida Conference will have left. Because not in our lifetime, but maybe in a half a lifetime, half a generation, we have seen sexuality redefined, not just in our culture, but increasingly where? In the church. And now faithful, godly churches like our brothers and sisters up the road and, and then down the road and that away and this away are having to leave at great expense of paying out their pension obligations to remain faithful to the Word of God. And that takes courage. That takes, that takes commitment to the Word of God. You know, the thing about false teaching is it never starts out with a big banner that says, hey, I'm a bad guy, and I'm about to tell you something that's not true. Instead, we have to follow Paul's prayer here, which is what? That though I'm present in the, absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. When we are firm in Christ, when we are seeking Him through His Word, by the Spirit, as we come together as God's people and come to the table and worship weekly, God makes us stronger in our faith. He grows us in His grace that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil in whatever manifestation they take. Are we firm in Christ? We have everything we need for life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells us that. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Where will you find it? In the Word of God as we pursue Christ. So how do we land this plane? Jesus is enough for salvation and spiritual growth. He is enough to save you. You don't add your good works to it. He is enough to forgive you of all the stuff that keeps you up at night he died on the cross for you. He is enough to break the power of sin in your life because He has spent, sent the Spirit. He is enough to see you through hard times because He promises never to leave you or forsake you. Jesus is enough. But you must have Him. You must have Him. If you do not have Christ, then none of this applies to you. And so Christ is freely offered to all those who would trust in Him. He is freely offered to all those who repent of their sin and turn to Him because His death is sufficient. 
His resurrection is enough. That our lives can be changed. That our eternities will be changed from hell to heaven. That we will have new life within us. That He will seal us with His Holy Spirit. Jesus is enough. We can trust that He's enough. But if we trust in Him, on the last day, you know what the Father is going to say on the day of judgment? Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're enough. Help us then to look more to you. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.